You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, we are talking about different indirect comparisons, approaches and the respective methods. So stay tuned. Maybe I'm repeating myself about the LinkedIn uh, social media network. There's a great PSI community on it where you find lots of news on it. So, so check out the PSI group there. Also check out the Effective Statistician group. Both are really, really nice communities and I'm posting regularly in there. There is little to no fluff in it, which is really good. And you can see from programming advice up to industry news, lots of, lots of different things. Um, I'm checking it out actually regularly and I'm mentioning lots about my external communications through that. So it's a really, really nice way uh, to stay in touch. So join the Effective Statistician LinkedIn group if you haven't done yet. This podcast is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the ever-growing video-on-demand content library, free registration to the many PSI webinars and much, much more. You can join this community by just £20 for non-higher-income countries and a really, really reasonable £95 for higher-income countries. It's more or less the same amount in euros or dollars. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member too. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. Uh, so we are here together again, Alexander and myself. Hello, Alexander. Hi, Benjamin. How are you doing? Our usual oh. Tuesday evening slot. <laughs> it is, it is, with a beer. Well, actually, without alcohol, so half a beer, basically. So, <laughs> so yeah, we have a very interesting topic today. Um, it's one of your, your topics, actually. It's a topic from your heart. And I'm, I'm today really curious about it because I have no idea what Alexander will be talking about today. I mean, I do have a sense of it, but actually I have never come across this, um, in my, in my professional life. So I actually came across it once last year when we met for, um, for workshop, PSI workshop, real world evidence. So there was some topic about indirect comparisons. And this is the topic we would like to talk about today. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to just, uh, you know, listen and see what, what's coming up. So maybe, I mean, for, for start, Alexander, maybe you can just give us an, a short introduction of, you know, how, um, or wh why do we use indirect comparisons or what, what is it? What actually is it? Maybe let's, let's make, make a very basic start. Yeah. So in terms of what it is, um, The indirect comparison uh, question always comes up if you don't have a so-called head-to-head study, and, and sometimes even if you have one. So um, indirect comparisons is if you have um, two 
clinical trials. And um, in the first one, you compare, let's say, uh, your compound with mostly placebo, let's say. And then you have another uh, study, a published study usually, that um, looks at another compound versus placebo. And now you can use this placebo arm, this common placebo arm, as a so-called bridge to compare your compound versus the published literature compound. So that's the indirect comparison. It's, it's direct would be you have it both compounds in a head-to-head -head study in, in, in one clinical trial. And here's the indirect means you're comparing it indirectly via this uh, so-called bridge comparator arm, uh, which can be placebo, which can be also another active compound. Um, there's uh, multiple sources where you can have that. Uh, sometimes people even speak about indirect comparisons when you just compare maybe even to uh, single-arm studies against each other, yeah? Then people very often speak about so-called unadjusted indirect comparisons mm. or naive indirect comparisons. That is, in most of the guidelines, for obvious reasons, um, discouraged because then, of course, you, you're not comparing just the treatments, but you're also um, not adjusting for any design differences, for any population differences, for any... Uh, other differences between clinical studies. So, so you compare, you know, all the comparisons between the treatments are then confounded with all the differences in terms of study design as well. And the nice thing with this indirect comparison about, you know, this bridge comparator is that it basically takes into account also these design differences, so to mm. say. So is it is it then that you have the data or need to have the data available the indirect for, for indirect comparison or is it just that you have the reports or the outcome of the trial available usually? So this um, analysis really comes from this um, evidence school where people look mostly into uh, published data. Mm. So you can do this indirect comparison. Even if you just have the reports or the you know full papers of of the uh, two um, two studies, sometimes you know even the just the abstracts are sufficient to do some uh, indirect comparisons. Because if you think about um, let's say just binary endpoints, you basically just need the denominators and the numerators for the uh, different response. This from the four different arms, so from uh, the two bridge comparator arms from the two different studies, as well as from the two compounds that you want to compare against. And that's all what you need to run an indirect comparison. Hmm. I mean, there, there are obviously good reasons for, for having these indirect comparisons. I mean, costs on one side, ethical reasons on the other side to not, you know, to, to not include too many or more, more patients than needed in, in a study. But what are other reasons for indirect comparison? So I think if you're working in clinical development, um, then most often you will come across these when you are actually planning a head to head study. So if you're planning, um, that kind of study, you first need to know, okay, what is the anticipated treatment effect between 
so or treatment difference between your uh, two compounds that you're yep. looking into. And there, in the rock comparisons, are usually the sort of first approach to see okay, what would be the treatment differences and, and um, uh, can I power that accordingly? Or um, even if I want to do a non-inferiority study, yeah, um, that gives me kind of a ballpark of where the treatment effect may end up. The other point where it's really important is in lots of different HDA assessments. So um, if let's say in Germany, you don't have a head-to-head study, then these indirect comparisons are the first alternative uh, version to go into. Another area is the um, submissions in a couple of other um, HTA agencies. Um, mm. I'm just thinking about South Korea, uh, Australia, and a couple of others that uh, predominantly look into these um, more, let's say, simple indirect comparisons. In the UK, you'll also look into, and in, in, oh, specifically actually in England and NICE, you would also look into these indirect comparisons, but they have moved to kind of the next level, the network meta-analysis comparisons that we talked about in previous episodes, um, just referring there to the one with uh, Giorgio Salanti and uh, some episodes that we published already in, I think, mid-2018. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, very, very interesting. So, but, and just given, given that there's a, <clears throat> given that there's a, um, you know, a different approach than, than just have a direct comparison. So what, what are the methodologies or what is the, the difference that you need to take into account when, when you plan such a study? So how do you deal with the in, incomplete uh, data that you have in a way? I mean, of only looking into the results. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there is, of course, lots of shortcomings with it because, um, you can have different design aspects uh, in the different studies, and um, these can lead to all kind of different problems. But um, just to coming back from um, to, to why it's important, it's if you don't have a head-to-head -head study, that is the best way you can make a recommendation about what is a better treatment. Yeah, so so it's for for any decision maker that must make a decision and can't just you know run the study by himself to either for budget reason or for just time constraint because uh, the stakeholder needs to make a decision now that's the best evidence you can get and so sometimes even regulators look into these to get a better assessment of for example how uh, the benefit risk profile looks for a certain compound against each, uh, another compound um in, in terms of medical guidelines these uh, analysis play a big role of course if something like that is published that helps physicians a lot uh, to make uh, treatment decisions and um so so It's really fundamental in lots of lots of different areas of, of medical research. Yeah, that, that's understood. But is it is it then common? Like if you say that that medics do or make decisions on the on the treatment on that, is it then so common um, that they understand the 
the differences between one-to-one um, -one comparisons or indirect and direct comparisons and understand how to interpret it. And I mean, I assume that there must be some difference in, in methodologies or interpretation of the results. I think that is one of the areas where we as statisticians need to do much more teaching and lecturing. But of course, we also need to teach and lecture ourselves and our colleagues. And that's one of the reasons why we are having this podcast today. Um, <laughs> You're starting with me. <laughs> so so um, it's something that if you have just learned about clinical trials and just focused on clinical trial uh, implementation, you maybe have never come across. Yeah. It's important to know the uh, ins and outs, at least on a high level, and that's what we are covering today. In terms of the clinical decision-making, I still see at lots of medical conferences where the, um, where physicians will just put up the arms from different uh, phase three studies next to each other. Then they will make some kind of disclaimer below it, but then still talk about it as if it would be, you know, more or less had to have yeah. to have studies. So there's for sure a lot of education needed in that area. Yeah, no, I believe so. But just for 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 the next um, steps, where where did then? This this all start with I think do you do you have a good like a good reference like when if if somebody starts to get get in um, get in touch or get more you know curious about it so where what is the best way to start with the whole uh, topic I mean we are going to we are coming to software etc later but just from from the from the beginning so I think the first key reference is the um, Bucher method. So, so, um, and we'll put a link to that, uh, paper in, in the show notes. It's, but if you just search for Bucher, B-U-C-H-E-R, um, and in direct comparisons, you'll find the, uh, that all over the, uh, the internet. Okay. And that is the most fundamental, most simple thing that you can think of. It's, it's really that, uh, approach that I just described. You have two studies. Uh, both have two treatments, um, and one is a, is a common treatment. And, uh, then you get the, you know, the formula for how to derive your interval comparison. And that is the most easy way to look into it. And you don't even need a software tool for that. You can, you know, <laughs> do that, some, some hand calculation, any a little bit more advanced, uh, uh, pocket calculator can do that unless maybe the p-value for the distribution but everything else you get pretty easily kind mm. of uh, okay. calculated and so that is a very very straightforward approach and it will solve most of the problems uh, usually okay. the next kind of advancement beyond that is the so-called matching adjusted interact comparison. And there's a paper by Sinknovich et al. that there the, the, the question is baby, uh, basically that if you have two different populations in the two different studies, so in your own study and the published literature study, for your own study, you have access to the patient level data. And now you reweight your patient level data to match the baseline characteristics of the published study. So basically you, you shift it 
onto the characteristics of the published study. And therefore, you uh, potentially um, remove any confounders uh, that are there. You actually only need to do that for those treatment, uh, for those baseline characteristics that are treatment effect modifiers. You don't need to do that okay. for anything. So for, let's, for example, if age doesn't have an effect on the treatment outcome or is not even a, a treatment effect modifier, well, then obviously it doesn't matter whether you adjust for yeah. it or not. Uh, the only thing that can happen if you adjust for it, you actually lose power or precision, mm. let's say, um, because we shouldn't talk so much about power, but precision of the confidence interval uh, will, will decrease. The other uh, slide more con uh, complex thing is if you have, let's say, on one of these two sides of the comparison, if you have more than one study, yeah? So, so let's say for your own compound, you have three studies that compared against placebo. And for the other uh, compound, you have four studies that compare it against placebo. What do you do then? Average it. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> you, 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 you. Basically, you've run a meta-analysis first yeah, yeah. across these uh, two different things, and then you use the results from the meta-analysis. Mm. Yeah, so, so it's a little bit more complex, but it's not rocket science to do that. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And then the next step beyond that would are these uh, network meta-analysis. Yeah. So, so um, there's the, uh, the most common approach is if, if you kind of Imagine this network of all the different clinical trials and um, all the different studies are two-arm studies. So they only compare the new treatment to, let's say, standard of care or to placebo. Then mm -hmm. all the different comparisons are always across placebo. So what you're basically doing is you're running a whole series of indirect comparisons. Yeah. Okay. It gets a little bit more tricky if then you have some closed loops in there. So, so some three arm studies or you combine head to head data with indirect comparisons. So that could be the case, for example, that you could, let's say, enrich your head to head study. Yeah. So, so imagine you have a, a, a very small head to head study. But you have multiple very big placebo uh, controlled studies. Might be a little bit of an unusual situation, but potentially could be the case. Then your, you could have the indirect comparisons add additional evidence to the head to head comparison, which is, you know, doesn't have enough precision. Yeah. So, so that would be then this kind of mixed treatment comparison or network meta analysis. And that's mostly, that's so to say the most simple way you can think about a network meta-analysis where you have basically three different uh, treatments in it and they are, so to say, loop, all looped together. All looped together. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so there's a couple of different uh, ways to look into this. There's, there's Bayesian analysis to look into these kind of things. There's frequentist analysis to look into these. Both come with pros and cons as, as usual. Um, but for today... We'll not talk so much about NMAs, but really focus on the, on the basics of the indirect comparison. Yep. 
Thank you. Okay. Before, I mean, um, is there anything else you would like to mention in terms of like methodology or key, key things to, to move on? No, let's, let's, uh, I think the, the, ne the first step whenever you run these network, uh, these indirect comparisons or whenever you want to do some evidence based decision making, the first step is always to have a systematic literature for you. So, or mm. very often abbreviated as SLR. So there's a whole science about how to do that and how to include so-called gray literature and, and so on. Um, and that also leads too far to be completely exhaustively discussed here, but, but kind of the, the most important thing, uh, kind of from a practical point of view, where I see most of the problems is that, um, you need to have a good data extraction sheet there. So mm. what basically happens is if you have hundreds of papers, someone will go through all these papers and take out the numbers from there and enter them into some kind of Excel spreadsheet or whatsoever. The statistician needs to have a very, very close look onto that because some people use these Excel spreadsheets more like word tables Yeah, and then you have um, uh, in in the cell. You know, sometimes it's um, our response rate is four point five percent, and then the next it's um, formatted differently, and then the next cell it comes with a uh, with a comma instead of a point or a decimal, and and yet the next <laughs> one is as there's an additional comment in it or a question mark or whatsoever. Yeah, so so these sheets to, to make sure that they come in in the right format and, uh, you know, you have comments somewhere else and it has actually all the data in there that you need. That's kind of the key, key thing. Yeah. No, it's understood. Yeah. Because then otherwise, you know, you mentioned now already, I think twice at least, the uh, focus on the precision You mentioned precision. What, what, what do you mean, or why do you, why do you mean that precision is the word we used, and why is it so important with these um, indirect comparisons? So the the first point is, um, as you compare indirectly, you lose a lot of uh, precision compared to um, a usual head-to-head -head study. So yeah. I'm not sure where I have this from, but I know I once heard that you need for an indirect comparison about four times the sample size to have the same precision as for a head-to-head um, -head stu head -head study. So um, if, so if some of the listeners, you know, step over that rule of thumb, uh, please add it to the comments because I can't find it anymore, but it's just this number four is in my head. Mm. That I think is a, That speaks about the precision so much. The other thing is why I don't like the word power so much is because these are all retrospective analysis. Yeah. So you don't have any impact or influence on the sample size. Yeah. You just need to take the data that is there. And so rather than talking too much about power, I rather would like to talk about the precision of the treatment effect. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I think because looking looking back like retrospectively rather than forward, so power is something to determine at the beginning. 
a great resource, by the way, to, to um, learn about that is the Cochrane Handbook. The Cochrane Handbook is probably the go-to guideline for all these evidence generation uh, approaches. Cochrane is probably also the organization that publishes most of these systematic reviews, has very good guidances across, uh, uh, there, lots of very experienced statisticians that give input into this uh, guidance. And yeah, maybe one day we get... Julian Higgins is one of the authors of the Cochrane Handbook here on, on, <laughs> into the podcast. Why not? Let, let's see. But it goes into um, all the statistics as well as also the uh, systematic literature review things. Okay, that's about literature. But what about software? Do we have um, what tools should we use then, or what you recommend for software? I suppose I mean the standard is um, probably SaaS that you can just use. Um. Yeah. So, so as I said, you know, the Bucher you can pre pretty much very easily uh, okay. do in any software. Um, but there is various packages for R that are available. There's, of course, SARS that you can use. And what is very often used um, by um, non-statisticians are actually the free tools that you, or pretty much free tools that you can use uh, through the Cochrane organization. So um, I think Revman is the, is the, liter is the software that, uh, that's used there. So... Okay, so it's not a, it's not a, it's a separate software. It's not yep. like... Um Tools for AR or anything else. Yeah. yeah. And, and with this software, you can, of course, create, you know, just your, uh, confidence intervals, p values, things like that. But, um, very often they also come with additional, um, visualizations. Like if you want to do, um, if you need to do meta analysis first, they can also provide you with a funnel plot to see whether you have any publication bias or forest plots to look into heterogeneity. And if you have, um, really are looking into this mixed treatment comparison, so if you're combining head to head and indirect comparisons, then, uh, you can even look into certain inconsistency assessments. So inconsistency occurs then. It, when the indirect comparison leads to very different results than the head-to-head -head comparison. So imagine mm. you have an indirect comparison which shows uh, A is significantly better than B and the head-to-head -head study shows the opposite. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with the interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. That's actually, there is actually lots of, lots of debates about that. So, so, mm. um, Lots of, let's say, pure clinical trialists would say, forget about the indoor comparisons. That's crap. Just, you know, focus on the head to head data. And some other people would actually say, no, you can't do that. There's probably also some, um, you know, sponsored bias or whatsoever going on with the head to head comparison. So, uh, let's not just you know, disregard the indoor comparisons completely. So it's a pretty interesting discussion. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But I can, I can imagine that, that just for, I mean, it sounds so far, it sounds quite straightforward say, well, you can use it in just easy software and everything is available. But I, you know, from just looking at what is there, why I would think it's, it's quite a big, 
pool of opportunities for biases, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. just, just, you know, if you design a study, you have everything set. Like, uh, the, I mean, the design, obviously, the population, time points, uh, duration, and so on and so on. So, but now if you look into um, literature, if you just do research on something to compare with, I mean, obviously, this is never, ever in any way absolutely identical to the study design that you have. So, yeah. So there is, my perception is the more strict the regulatory guidances are, uh, the more standardized the phase three designs are in a specific therapeutic area, the more, um, easy it is to run these indirect comparisons. Yeah. I just happen to have some more experience in psoriasis, for example, where the treatment, the, the studies are amazingly similar. Yeah. So the endpoint is always the same. The, the population is amazingly similar. Um, even the treatment duration, there's only slight differences. Also, they can actually sometimes lead to big distortions there, but, um, there's rather easy to uh, run down the comparison. Also, the um, uh, the placebo uh, is, is really consistent across, mostly consistent across the different uh, studies, and that makes it easier. If you have, however, other areas where, like in neuroscience, for example, then you may have uh, one depression study that uses uh, Montgomery Asperg, rating scale for, for uh, rating depression, and another one uses the Hamilton rating scale. So first one looks into an eight-week study, and so another one is a 12-week study. The first one has a you know, very aggressive dosing scheme, and the other one has a less aggressive dosing scheme. Yeah, one has maybe is run in a, in specialist sites in Europe and the other one is run in GP sites in the US. There can be all kind of, you know, documented and non-documented differences between the, the mm. designs. And in these situations, it's of course much harder to, to justify that you're not introducing any biases there. Yeah, no, exactly. That's what I was thinking of. And I, I, yeah, I, I believe that there's hardly any way around it. Cause I mean, if, if you don't have the data itself, if you can do like, let's say case matching or anything where you select all patients in terms of baseline characteristics or uh, any, anything around this, I think there's hardly anything what you can do except either let it be or move on depending on how you argue for so, it. so i think there's there's two things to uh, to have a look into the first is can you specify in which direction the bias probably goes so so is that a bias that increases or decreases the treatment effect um The second point, is it possible if you have access to one of the patient level data that you can through that restrict the bias? So let's say you have, um, you have an eight week study and the reported public data is a six week study. Uh, can you somehow get to, uh, maybe through interpolation or something like that, get to a six-week outcome for your own study? Mm. Or can you um, 
if you have, let's say, a wider population included in your study, can you restrict it to so that it looks more similar to the um, uh, studies that you have in the published literature? Or if you have different endpoints collected, is there a way that you can uh, match these endpoints on top onto each other? There's a couple of diff different things that you can do, but of course, it's it helps you to better understand how robust your analysis are. Yeah, it could be in the end that you know you just see that overall your evidence base is, is all, you know in terms of your sample size, in terms of your precision is so poor that um, you can't make any any statements whatsoever. Uh, but then at least you know you've done your due diligence and, and looked into it. Yeah. yeah, I think it's quite it's quite a different approach, really. And and as you said, it's probably there are ways to look into this, but a um, bit of experience and research is definitely needed for that. Yeah, and so really the, the, the focus is on everything that alters the treatment effect. Yeah, so, so really the treatment effect modifiers. Um, one could be also a common one is that the that the bridge comparator is not really the same. Yeah. So although it might be labeled placebo in both cases, the standard of care that sits below the placebo is, is different. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, that of course can lead to all kind of different dis distortions. That's, that's a little bit of a, of a problem. The other problem that uh, comes with these various different approaches that you can then do to um, check for your bias is that it becomes really hard to pre-specify the analysis. Yeah, so so it's anyway a you know kind of an observational approach because you look into data that's already existing. Yeah, you, you specify your analysis after the data was collected. Still, lots of people try to you know, have a protocol, uh, something that is more pre-specified. However, then, you know, when you first dig into the data and you, you just see problems that you have not thought about before, and then you need to come up with different analysis approaches. And maybe these analysis approaches that you come up with are much more sensible than the ones that you initially thought about. So these, the, there's a lot of problems with kind of the, the terminology pre-specification here. So are you just, I mean, just having a thought might be a really dumb question, but isn't it that, isn't, couldn't you also be in a, in a position where you actually plan for a study and you just leave out an arm? Because there's external or there's also data uh, already data available, so that you're still in the phase of planning or being able of planning a study, knowing the results of um, indirect comparison. Already. Well, well, I think you probably can run a head-to-head -head study and augment it with your um, with an indirect uh, approach. Yeah, so to basically say, okay, there's a lot of indirect evidence already and we just run this head-to-head -head study to boost the precision of it. So I mm. think that is in principle possible. I think it depends on the specific situation and the specific audience for which you, for who you run this uh, analysis. Mm. Yeah. 
I think if I'm talking to FDA or EMA, I would have a very, very in-depth discussion about it. If you're uh, doing that more from maybe an academic setting, I think that possibly would be, uh, yeah, a practical approach to contain the costs for the for the head-to-head -head study. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's just the thought? Because you stressed it twice now that that we are only looking at the retrospective. Um, available data. So, yeah, yeah, but but uh, as you say, in the in this uh, case of this uh, mixed treatment comparisons, com you know, uh, adding the head-to-head -head data onto the indirect comparisons, there's some some interesting things in there. Excellent. So, any anything else? What you just from the working environment and with indirect comparison? Anything else you would like to just share? So, in terms of uh, the reporting. I think a very, very detailed reporting of all the things that you're doing is really important here. As you've seen, mm. um, there's a lot of variations of your analysis that you can do. It makes no sense that you report just, well, this was our primary analysis. And, you know, we have also done some secondary analysis, but we'll not show them to you. Believe us, they are all robust. It's probably not the best <laughs> way to transparently describe your results. Um, similar to the consort statement for clinical trials, there's a Prisma statement that you can have a look into, and we'll put the link to that also in the, in the show notes, which also states, you know, goes to the systematic literature review and, um, I think the, the so-called PICO statement is in there as well. Um, so um, that's probably a quite useful uh, resource to go to uh, and to mm. make sure that we Excellent. check all the boxes. Yeah. And, Excellent. And, and just another kind of reference, um, as we talked about pre-specified and post-hoc, Uh, the episodes about uh, 50 shades of pre-specification with, with Luvisa is probably also a nice episode to re-listen to if you haven't listened yet on that, uh, that, you know, pre-specified and post hoc is there's not always that clear cut black mm. and white things there. And uh, that is specifically important here in this area. All right. Excellent. Well, I, I did learn a lot today. To be honest. <laughs> Very good. So I should listen more often to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Alexander. It was very, very good. Very interesting topic today. Um, and um, yeah, then talk to you next time. Yeah, and we kept it un under 40 minutes. So okay, uh, cool. a little bit more in alignment with the guidance from our listeners. So <laughs> I hope you... <laughs> appreciate that <laughs> that we are not talking too much okay yeah talk to you next week bye this show was created in association with PSI thanks for listening and thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast also Don't forget to join the Effective Statistician LinkedIn group. That would be really awesome to have you there and meet you there because then all the different listeners of the podcast get to know each other and that's really something that I would really love to see is if there would be more connections between the different listeners and they would learn from each other. 
Through that, reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.